We just had to have the patience and we just had to wait for science to come to our rescue. I've often described it as being like these people that found the Rosetta Stone, you know, in ancient Egypt, and it had a hieroglyph on it. And they knew it was what was on it was really, really important, and they couldn't read it. Yeah. And they kept it for years and years and years until somebody finally decoded it and read it. Well, that's exactly what Helen's Cove was. And eventually in 2004, he got a call back and said, yes, we've looked at this, and actually there are two male profiles here. There's the one you discovered a long time ago, but we've got another one. We've actually found three profiles on the coat. We've found Helen's DNA, which is her coat. We've found the anonymous man who we've been looking for all these years, and we've now found another profile. We've matched that against the database, and bang, Angus Robertson Sinclair. Welcome to Crime Time Inc. Welcome, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Very well. Good. Tom, we've done a couple of episodes, really an introduction to the World's End Murders in Edinburgh that you were involved in from the very start of. And at the end of our last episode, we were talking about major inquiries in general, and you alluded to the fact that the Bible John Inquiry here in Glasgow, serial killer, had lots of repercussions and it influenced a lot of the thinking and decision-making that came thereafter. For people who are not familiar, and I'm sure in not-too-distant future we'll have former detectives on who worked in the Bible John Inquiry, but from your perspective through there in the East Coast, can you give us an overview of Bible John and how you think it influenced policing in Scotland thereafter? Yeah, of course, Simon. I think in terms of Bible John, I think what's interesting about that is not the investigation itself, but the effect that it had. And uh, many people in Scotland are familiar with Bible John, and usually what they know about Bible John is complete nonsense. There's more nonsense being talked and written and broadcast about Bible John than just about anything else I can think of, except perhaps the original Jack the Ripper back in Whitechapel. The Bible John murders, as such, were a series of three murders which happened in 1968 to 1969, a long, long time ago, in Glasgow. The consequences of these murders and the way they were portrayed and the way that the tabloid press distorted them and drove the investigations actually had a chilling effect on murder investigation in Scotland through the 70s and through the 80s. And I think that what I refer to as the ghost of Bible John, this memory of what happened in the Bible John investigation, actually influenced senior detectives in the late 70s and 80s when they decided not to link the murders of Christine and Helen with the Glasgow murders of Anna Kenny, Hilda Macaulay, and Agnes Cooney. What happened with the so-called Bible John murders, and I say so-called because actually I don't believe, and anybody who really knows about the case does not believe that these three murders were carried out by the same person. The first murder was in February of 1968, a young woman called Patricia Docker, Pat Docker. The common factor was they'd all been out dancing at the Barrowlands Ballroom, a well-known public ballroom in Glasgow at that time. And on a Thursday evening, 
there was what was referred to as euphemistically as the over 25s night. But in actual fact, that was the night where people went, many of them who were married, some of them who had other relationships, who went to have a good time, who went to meet up and whatever. Sexual encounters were not unknown. Pat Docker had been at the Barrowlands Ballroom and she left and she was found dead the next morning. And this is the crucial thing. Very, very close to her home. Very close to her home. Okay. So that's in February 1968. The investigating officers at the time were convinced that just as her body was found close to home, so the answer lay close to home. And that, in fact, she had been killed in some kind of domestic or semi-domestic incident. That's February 68. Fast forward to August 1969. Now, that's a long, long gap. Mm -hmm. If you look at offending of these people, take, for instance, the case we're talking about at World's End, we're talking about a series of four or five murders over the case of six months. Yeah. So to have an 18-month gap is a long time. The next victim is a young woman called Jemima MacDonald, August of 69. She's 32 years old. She's a young mother. She goes out to the dancing. She tells her family she's going to one dance hall, but she's not. She goes to the Battlelands. And the reason she does this is because the Battlelands has a certain reputation, and she didn't want to admit to going to the Battlelands ballroom. She goes to the Battlelands ballroom, and she is seen in company of a man. And one of her pals describes that man very, very well. And this is where the composite picture of Bible John comes. This is the one that you see all over the place, the short-haired man, the man who uh, has conversations about the Bible, etc., etc. A very short time later, in October 1969, that's just a few months later, Helen Putter is the third victim. And it's Helen Putter who is seen with a man, and it's Helen Puttock that there is a DNA recovery from, okay? So if you look at the last two murders, then they are very, very similar indeed. And there's a whole lot of other similarities, which we won't go into just now because we're actually not no. talking about Bible John as such. But the point is that these two murders are definitely linked, and we've got DNA, and we've got a very, very good photofit artist's impression of a man. Now, the artist's impression of the man closely resembles a man called John Irvin McInnes. And John Irvin McInnes was actually suggested as a lookalike for the photo fit. And he was investigated at the time, but he was eliminated for reasons which I've never quite understood and which have never been clearly articulated. But anyway, he is eliminated, but later... When DNA starts to come in, and remember, we're talking about 1969 here, DNA doesn't come in till 15, almost 20 years later. But when DNA comes in and the DNA is matched against suspects, when they do a match against John Irvin McInnes, they find that it's very, very, very close, right? The problem is that John Irvin McInnes committed suicide something like six months after the murder of Helen Puttock. And unfortunately, he was buried in a very wet grave and damp soil and 
water each DNA, uh, especially with the techniques we had then yes. for the analysis of DNA. And it's very important to put this in a context of time. And when it was matched, when the DNA sample they had from the murder of Helen Putter against John of McInnes, the view was that it was 99%, but it wasn't absolutely conclusive. Okay. Okay. There is a very good reason to believe that John Irvin McInnes was involved in the death of Helen Putter because of his DNA found in, a, in an intimate place and also uh, because he is an absolute match for the photo fit. He was an ex-Scots guardsman. He was very tall, uh, very smart. Uh, he stood out as being very smartly dressed compared with the other people who went to the Barrowrooms ballroom, et cetera, et cetera. But the real story about the Bible John killings is the fact that Bible John was a figment of the imagination of a tabloid newspaper reporter in a daily record who made up the name Bible John because, of course, at these dance halls, everybody said their name was John. And this yeah. guy had spoken about the Bible. What was interesting for me was, and a, and a lesson for all SIOs that came forward, is that the press reporting and the tabloid headlines started to drive the investigation. So in other words, the police found themselves not in control of the destiny of the thing, but also instead reacting to this tabloid headline. And frankly, this moral panic there was about Bible John. And it was tragic because. The SIO in the case was a man called Joe Beatty. You will not remember Joe Beatty. No, I met him. I'm going to talk about him. Yeah, well, I met Joe Beatty. He was out at the police college as the deputy commandant when I was on a, a long course there. He was our director of studies. And, and Joe Beatty was a very uh, good man. He really was. And I was terribly upset about six months ago. There was a podcast done, another one on uh, Bible John, most of it utter nonsense, but suggested that in somehow Joe Beatty was corrupt and that somehow he had deliberately misled the investigation or had corrupted the investigation to protect some palace or something. I've never had any of this so much nonsense in my life. Joe Beatty was as straight as a die. And I'll tell you something, if Joe Beatty had thought that his granny was Bible John, he would have arrested her. That's the kind of man Joe Beatty was. The whole Bible John thing, as I say, has achieved a life of its own. And it's become half fact and half fiction. Crime fiction writers introduced Bible John into newspapers and yeah. cranks say that Peter Tobin was Bible John. They haven't done their chronology. No. I mean, Peter Tobin was in his early teens when the Bible John murders took place. You know, all this sort of stuff. What that did was... SIOs in the 1980s and 90, late 1970s were determined of one thing. They were not going to have another Bible John. They were not going to have another moral panic where they ended up chasing their tails, responding to the tabloid press, and hunting for a man who did not exist. Yeah, because right at the root of that is the fact that the three murders were linked, and maybe prematurely. That's maybe the truth of the matter, because of the pressure from the press. It's interesting what you're saying about the myth that grows around it, because you only have to look at the Whitechapel murders, the Ripper murders, to see now, 
You've got Sherlock Holmes investigating them. You've got so many theories about who the Ripper was that it's all become mixed up in the folklore and the facts are actually not that important anymore, Tom. And and that's no. the very danger that, that was avoided by not going down that road. I think it's a it's a testament to to the time. We, we've got a mutual friend, Alan Nicholl, who's written a book about the Sheila Garvey murders up in Aberdeenshire, and I'm hoping we'll get Alan on. In fact, I know we will get Alan on to talk about those murders uh, during the course of the, the year. But he very much demonstrates through his book and through everything that we've talked about since that it was the press that convicted her, in effect, because of the headlines, because of the, the height. She was good-looking, she was a looker, she was sexy at the right age. There was a lot of sex involved in the whole thing. She was having an affair behind his back. And it was really the tabloid press that managed to get her convicted. She was never going to get a fair trial. And I know we're not talking about a trial here, we're talking about a major inquiry that requires public participation and help. Factually, it needs people to come up and be honest and, and give us facts. It doesn't need people to be misled down that road. We know what it's like when you put out an appeal, the thousands of calls that can come in, and some of them are very well-intentioned, but absolutely, they just take up time. We talked about this before, about the Black Inquiry and its early stages as well with the public. So that's Bible John put into context and the dangers that were avoided in 1980. You alluded to some other murders there in the late 70s. The World's End murders were 77. I joined the police in December 78, 27th of December. I was posted to Campbelltown down in Argyle, and I didn't get there until April the 9th because of Tully Allen and Oxford Street and all that sort of training that I obviously went through. You can see the benefit of it now. And, you can. You can. and I remember you talking a few episodes ago about when you were 20 and you were absolutely useless. I think that was your once, and that was me. You know what it's like. I'm fresh out the wrapper. Not only am I fresh out the wrapper and haven't been outdoors in uniform yet or duty, but I'm in a strange place, 136 miles away in the depths of Argyle, which is a different world, okay? It's a completely different world from where I was brought up in Fossil Park and Partick and Glasgow. And so I'm totally out of my depth. And uh, a lot of the, the sergeants, and remember this older cops then, 78, there was a lot of senior cops that you don't see now. There was, a, there was probably three or four sergeants who had over 30 years' service. So it's a different world, Gaelic-speaking world. I'll give you an example of how far away it is. There was a lad, Graham Kennedy, who joined with me, sadly passed now. And when he heard me saying, I'll go to Campbelltown, when the, Mr. Watson, the divisional commander, asked for volunteers, he needed two for Auburn, two for Dunoon, two for Rossi, and two for Campbelltown. And I said, I'll go to Campbelltown because I had been down that neck of the woods on my motorbike. And Graham said, I'll go there too. So when we came out of divisional headquarters at Dumbarton, Graham said, where is it? He had no idea where we were going. We were starting on different days. They had got us digs down in Campbelltown. And the people who would put up young policemen. And Graham was going a different day from me. So he went on the bus. We didn't take our motorbikes because we had to take some clean underwear and stuff. <laughs> and uh, Graham said to the driver, 
Uh, I'm going to Campbelltown. Uh, can you tell me when to go off? And the driver said, you have to change bus for Campbelltown. You have to get off at Tarbot and get another bus, the West Coast bus. And Graham said, yeah, no bother. That's okay. So they got to Tarbot <laughs> and Graham got off the bus. And the driver had driven away and stopped and came back and said, are you not going to Campbelltown, son? He said, yeah. He said, it's not this Tarbot. It's the next Tarbot. <laughs> he had to go on the bus for another couple of hours to get to Tarbot Lock, right? And then he had to go on a West Coast bus. And in those days, they played Chief of Music on the bus. So Graham thought he had landed on the moon, to be absolutely honest, by the time he got there. So that was what we were like as youngsters getting posted away down there. A lot of young cops didn't last because it was just such a culture shock. But it, so that was April. And as you know, the body of Anna Kenny was found a month later uh, in Skipness, which is about 30 miles north of Campbelltown, near to the village of Tarbot, actually. It's only about six miles from Tarbot in a shallow grave. It was found by a shepherd. Uh, Anna Kenny had gone missing. She was 20 years of age, and she'd gone missing in Glasgow City Centre. She had been at the Hurdy Gurdy Bar, had left, gone to get a taxi home and had never been seen alive again. And this was her body found in May, June of 1979, almost two years later. She had been abducted in the December of 1977, uh, not long after the World's End murders, a couple of months after. And Anna Kenny's family are gone now. She's only got an auntie left, her mum and dad and her brother. Her, her mum actually committed uh, suicide. So it's a really sad story. It was really sad at the time. But this was me with a few weeks' service, basically. I'd seen my first dead body. And, and that's why I remember you saying you were useless. Because I, I couldn't drive. I drove a motorbike. I hadn't even sat my police driver's test at this point. I don't know if I was allowed out on my own on the street at all. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, there was a murder inquiry uh, at Campbelltown Police Office. And uh, the serious crime squad descended on us there. That must have been a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was all new to me and it was all exciting to me, Tom. I had no idea really what was going on round about me. All I knew was the shifts were all changed. We were working seven to seven night shifts for the first week uh, because they took some of the uniforms away to go and help with the search at the Locust. I remember seeing pictures recently in, the, in one of the, the online of all the cops searching. You can imagine where it's found. It was found within bushes, maybe 30 yards off the road. And it's not a, it's a B road. It's actually a single track road at that point at Skipness. So it's a very secluded spot. And my first job that week was to go with Tom McNabb, who's no longer with us now, and to man the police caravan at the Locust. So the caravan was set up in a lay-by, probably 50 yards from the shallow grave. The forensics had been photographers. Everybody had been and done their the business, and Anna had been removed to Glasgow Mortuary, and we were guarding the locust. And the purpose of that caravan, as you know, is to have a, a police presence at the locust so that locals, people passing, passers-by, anybody can pop in and have a chat, and you can use it as a base for the house-to-house inquiries. <laughs> so it was our base for our Croft-to-Croft inquiries and skip nets. And I think I saw three cars pass that night. I had to take the reggie numbers, which wasn't easy because they were going fast. 
Uh, but Tom slept through the whole thing. It's funny because later when we started in 2004, when we began Operation Trinity, we looked at the Anna Kenny recovery site. And of course, you'll remember that she'd been laid under bushes um, and the moss and the soil had grown over her yeah. and subsumed yeah. her. But the other thing that was interesting about that was the deterioration of the remains. That We've spoken in other episodes about, about Robert Black and about how the bodies of young people deteriorate very quickly. The body of Anna Kenny had also deteriorated very quickly because of the acidous soil. And also water eats DNA. Well, so does acidous soil. And so it was very difficult. It was actually a good piece of identification by yeah. the Strathclyde ID branch to actually get enough DNA to, to identify Anna Kenny. And that was only after 18 months. Yes. Slides of skeletal remains recovered of people that had been dead for 2,000 years. And depending on where they've been deposited, they're actually in better condition than yeah. a body that's been lying for 18 months. So it's very much about atmospheric conditions. And there couldn't have been worse atmospheric conditions for the, for the retention of evidence than Anakin. That was my first week was spent in the caravan, uh, seven to seven night shift. <laughs> and then I was back in Cavalton on back shift and I got to meet some of the squad and did some door-to-door -door inquiries, some house-to-house uh, -house inquiries in Talbot and elsewhere. And I think that must have been when the seed was sown. I already knew that I wanted to be a CID officer. I think I knew that from day one because I loved catching thieves. I loved it. And, uh, and I was good at it. But I think they sowed the seed of, of a slightly different... <laughs> we called them... They weren't called the Serious Crime Squad in Argyle, of course, uh, for that three or four weeks that they were there, that they blew the tornado through Camelton. They were called the Serious Drinking Squad at that time because they were away from home and they were staying away from home. But I made a point in my book in the 10% about at the end of that chapter about them because they really were at the 10%. They were wild. But there was nothing compromised as far as the inquiry was concerned. And you often found that. I remember when I joined the Serious Crime Squad, the first morning, the, the chief super took me in and gave me the, the talk. And uh, at the end of the talk, he said, Simon, in this place, we work hard and we play hard. And I already knew that because of, <laughs> I'd seen them down in Campbelltown and Argyle. But the work hard part was a very serious part of that. You mentioned Joe Beatty. There had been another murder that we'll talk about in another episode entirely at uh, Inner Gale, not far from Tarbert, where it was the groundsman, Gemmel, and it was Joe Beachy that ran that inquiry who instinctively solved that crime. But we'll talk about that another time. That was a tragedy. A young girl murdered on the grounds of the hotel. So back to World's End and Anna Kenny. You said about the forensics and whatnot at the, at the locus of Anna Kenny, and you looked into that again as part of Operation Trinity. Did you find differences, cultural differences, operational differences, procedural differences between what the Lothian's forensic boys would do and what the Strathclyde forensic boys would do, how they would deal with a locus, etc.? Not really. The actual uh, taking of productions and forensic productions at the scenes of crime was very similar. Because rem remember that the scientific staff all knew each other and they had come through similar training courses yeah. themselves. So they were all forensically aware. The big difference was how that forensic evidence was retained thereafter. And that was a difference. And that was a problem, became a real problem for us in 2004. 
when we discovered that all the forensic evidence for Anna Kenny, Agnes Cooney, Hilda Matoli had all been lost, had all been disposed of. When we drilled down into that, it was very simple. There were so many murders in Strathclyde at that time. You've got to put this in context. At that time, there were something like 100 murders in the Strathclyde force area alone yeah. in a year. And now, bearing in mind there's less than 50 in the whole of Scotland now, mm -hmm. then you get some idea of the scale. But that decade, as I've often said, was by any standards the most violent decade in, in recorded Scottish history. We can't go back to the 19th century because we don't have data. But for data we can look at, that 10 years between the mid-70s and the mid-80s was an incredibly violent time. So what happened with us was that once the forensic productions were examined, and if there was nothing to be found, then they were retained by the laboratory. Mm -hmm. In laboratory conditions, pending other developments in forensic science. And of course, we'll talk later about the critical evidence coming from Helen Scott's quote. We've spoken already about Helen Scott's quote. What happened in Strathclyde was that evidence was examined at the lab very competently, I've had no doubt, but if there was nothing to be found. It was returned to the SIO because there was so much of it that to retain it all at the lab was thought to be impractical. I think that was a mistake. Let's not judge in hindsight. That was the reason it was done. It went back to the SIO in plastic bags. Well, of course, we used plastic bags then instead of paper bags, yeah. which we know now we, we should use. Now, the SIOs would put them in the bottom drawer or whatever, busy force, so a DCI would move on to another murder, another serious crime, and the bag would lie there it was the wrong atmospheric conditions. Yeah. There was no audit of where the productions had been. So there was the risk of cross-contamination, or at least perceived cross-contamination. And then eventually, of course, what happened, and we pinned it back to the closing of the police station at Turnbull Street. We understand that a whole lot of anonymous-looking plastic bags containing old bits of clothing were simply discarded, nobody realising or knowing what the value of them was. And later on, of course, that had a terrible effect upon the investigations into the murders of Anna Kenny, Hilda McCauley and Agnes Green. The Strathclyde team in 2004 tried their utmost, did everything. They, they, they carried out searches of, of old police stations. They, they carried out searches of the forensic laboratory. They did everything to try and trace and recover these productions, but they were lost. That's the reason why charges were never brought for these cases. It was a disaster. It might seem unbelievable to people listening to this, who have not served as police officers, certainly as CID officers, but it's not to me, Tom, because I was in the middle of that. I moved to the Serious Crime Squad in 1983. So I was in the middle of that wave of murders and crime, not just murders, because it cascades down. If you're having 100 murders a year, then your serious assaults and your attempt murders and your stabbings and everything is, is multiplied at that time. And I know that in G Division, we were dealing with over 1,100 crime reports a month. And nowadays, it's about two or 300. So if And if you throw a murder inquiry or a major inquiry into that, then it just becomes totally, you, you're really just shuffling. 
but you're just keeping your head above water 12 hours a day and you're managing to keep your head above water and deal with the very more serious stuff. Everything else is getting a cursory. Sometimes people are getting a phone call and an apology because you, you haven't got time to go and see them about a stolen car or a housebreaking or whatever it might be. The scenes of crime guys, everybody. At that time, we invented the scenes of crime car, a divisional car with a couple of a DO and a uniform 24-7 just to get to the scenes of crime because IB department couldn't handle the amount of scenes of crime that we were doing. So you're shuffling all over the place. Goodness knows what we would do now with the lack of resources that Police Scotland have got now. But that's for a future episode, no doubt. That's right. But I think there's a recurring theme which strikes me to what we refer to and what were for us the good old days. They were fantastic days. We had very good people. Yeah. But our systems were inadequate. Yeah. And to succeed, you need good people and good systems. The retention of evidence in serious crime the system in the west of Scotland at that time was inadequate. But I have to say, candidly, we were lucky in the East to have someone like Lester Nipp, who I've spoken about already mm -hmm. in previous episodes of this. He was a one-off. Is a one-off. He's still alive and I'm speaking about yeah. He's dead. He's not. Yeah. He's one-off. His personal ownership and his vision of the productions in the World's End case made a huge difference. Now, in theory... We didn't need a less than that. In theory, it would all have worked if he hadn't been there. In practice, I'm not so sure. I am not so sure. The thing that, that I should add to that is that in the normal run of the office, any office in Glasgow at that time, if all the productions were kept in-house, we had a huge production room at Govan, at Orkney Street for the division. We had them all over the whole basement. There would have been no problem if all the productions had been dealt with because our procedures, our systems were good within the office for dealing with productions. I know that separate cars would go to pick up accused. We were very careful in the office. We used to call them brown bag days, Tom, when there had been something overnight, a stabbing, a temper or whatever, and all the productions had to be dealt with. We would split them up and use the admin office and the CID office. We were meticulous with it in the office. And then the production room, the production officer was a friend of mine, and we had devised a system with the boss, myself and him actually, had been involved in devising how we were going to store these things, all the, the different inquiries. Ammunition, firearms had to be kept separately, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's when we had dealt with outside agencies. It's when the productions had to leave the office. Now, that wasn't just to forensics. That was to ballistics. It was to fingerprints. It was to the court. And I remember the court being a huge problem because their system of dealing with productions in Glasgow Sheriff Court was shabby at best. I don't know who I'm going to upset by telling them that, but it's a fact. And quite often you had to go and look for the productions to get them back again because they were somewhere in the Sheriff Court system. So there was all those mitigating factors as well. And, of course, you and I have now got the benefit of that fantastic uh, attribute that nobody else could access called hindsight. At the time, you're just getting on with the job and doing the very best you can. The other thing we had was there were systems for the destruction of yeah. productions after so long. Naturally, our, our force custodians were wanting rid of some stuff, and so they'd apply to the fiscal, and so the fiscal would give a destruction notice. And sometimes the SIO wasn't informed. You're absolutely right. Not only would you need good people and good systems, 
but the systems of our partners yes. need to be coordinated as well. And that, I remember so many stories with firearms because the ammunition had to travel separate from the firearm. But the fiscal didn't necessarily do that. It was all sorts of shenanigans going on all the time uh, to try and interface with these different agencies. And the lab was just yeah. another one of them. And, and that volume wouldn't have helped. Yeah. So that was Anna Kenny. That was my first murder inquiry, if you like. And I got to meet a few detectives, a few, what we would have called them, would be hairy-ass detectives. And some of the stories that were created in that time in Cavaltown are still told to this day. But uh, a lot of them are still under wraps as well. <laughs> so they let, they made a lasting impression on a young constable on the, on the beat at that time. So that was Anna Kenny which always stuck with me for that reason. I think you'd always remember something like that so early in your service, Tom. And that decision was made not to link those inquiries we've talked about later. Let's go back to 1980 then. You were the DS when the World's End murders happened. What What's happening in 1980? What's happening with this inquiry as it moves forward? The inquiries going on, we never closed down the World's End uh, murders. There was a real feeling that it was solvable. And of course, we had the court. And we were confident that one day it would give up its secrets and that we would be able to identify someone. And not just that, but there was also the social issue of the fact that regardless of the fact we weren't getting very much in on a daily basis, there was still a huge public pressure to what has happened to these two young girls. So there was a massive pressure. So after about a year, all the card indexes were moved down to a police station in East Lothian, near to where the boss had been found. And a whole room, a large room, was set aside for the card index systems. And there was officers allocated and civilian staff, who were just as important, were there to keep the investigation ticking over. Now, by that I mean responding to any inquiries that came in, responding to any Letters that arrived, and there's always a poison pen letter arriving from somebody wanting to dob somebody in or somebody wanting to gain revenge. And of course, some of them are genuine. And there was always these, and we were always scanning, scanning to see if there were any similar crimes in any other part of not just the UK, but over Europe as well. So we were keeping our antenna up, and more importantly, perhaps in the lab, Lester Nibb and his colleagues were monitoring and carefully checking as forensic science advanced to see when we could perhaps unlock the coded secrets of Helen's coat. Now, of course, DNA arrived on the scene in the mid-90s for all practical purposes. Although DNA had been evolved and identified many years before, in terms of criminal investigation, really it was the mid-90s that came on the scene. And immediately, it was recognised that this might be the mechanism for a breakthrough. But something else happened before that, or about the same time as that, about early 90s, we had a detective super called John McGowan. John McGowan was a very fastidious guy. He's, he's, a, very, he's a very active and very well-known police historian now, actually. John's got more university degrees than I've had hot dinners. But this time in the 90s, I was the assistant chief operations. And he came to me and said, look, he said, the world's end. We have got to convert this onto homes. Is it going to be a huge undertaking? It's a massive investigation. He said, but eventually it's going to pay off 
this is an investment for the future. And of course, back converting cases onto homes is really difficult to do. It's expensive, it's time consuming, and you've only got so many homes operators and homes terminals, and they're all dealing with cases which are current, and so it's difficult. However, John, in fairness to him, and I've said this to him, John convinced me. He said, we've got to do this, and you've got to put your hand in your pocket and write the check to allow us to do this. And he was so compelling that I said, okay, you've convinced me. Go ahead and do it. And so he embarked on a lengthy and expensive back record conversion to convert the tens of thousands of cards about the world's end murders onto the homes system. And now, of course, at that time, there was nothing happening. At that time, it really was the, a quiet time. There were no breakthroughs. There was nothing on the horizon. DNA was still in its infancy. So it was a big leap of faith. And I credit him yeah. as being the champion who came forward and said, bro, this is what we've got to do. And he came along and knocked my door and convinced me that was the right thing to do. And I was really glad that I allowed him to convince me because undoubtedly it was the right thing to do. So that was an important point in time. Now, later on in the 90s, of course, DNA is coming on and we start to say, okay, let's take a tiny sample of this coat, this precious coat, this lining where the stain is and send it to a certain laboratory to see what they say. Now, at that time, when you tested something, it destroyed it. So you only had one chance. So can you tell us about the stain? You've alluded to a stain there. That's the first time. you've. I know you've said we've got the coat. That's great. Fantastic. Tell us about the coat and, and the stain. Helen Scott was found lying on her new Burberry coat. Okay. And this was a coat that she'd only just bought a few weeks before she died. So it was new and it was of very high quality. And Helen's body was found lying on the lining of the coat. And from preliminary examination, we found that on the coat, the lining of the coat was a large stain, which it tested positive for male semen. But at that time, there wasn't much else we could tell. But Lester Nibb was a guy of, of immense yeah. vision. And he believed that one day, in this coat, and this stain, would give up its secrets. We just had to have the patience, and we just had to wait for science to come to our rescue. And I've often described it as it being like these people that found the Rosetta Stone in ancient Egypt, and it had a hieroglyph on it, and they knew it was what was on it was really important, but they couldn't read it. Yeah. And they kept it for years and years until somebody finally decoded it and read it. That's exactly what Helen's Cove was. And of course, that sustained us. That gave us hope throughout the long, dark days when there was nothing happening. We had the coat, and uh, we knew we had confidence that if we just kept going and kept our heads down, and that's really what drove us along in these years of the 1980s. So anyway, in the mid-90s, at last we got a breakthrough. We sent away a sample of the coat, and they came back and said, yes, we can give you a profile, a DNA profile of the man who left this semen on Helen's coat. And that was about ooh, late 1980s, because 
I remember sitting in the office. I remember hearing the head of CID came along and told me. And I remember distinctly sitting back and thinking, we've got this guy. We have got this guy. I said, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. We've got the profile. We match it against the database. Bingo, we're going to get a match up. We're going to find out who this guy was finally. And of course, they tested it against all the databases we had and nothing. Unbelievable. How, how could it be? And then, of course, Simon, as you do, you begin to think, is this guy dead? Yeah. That's your worst fear. Yeah. Uh, this guy's dead and his DNA has not been taken. And at that time, we didn't have familial DNA. So it was just a case of searching for a profile. And so we thought, okay, we don't have him in our database, but maybe he's on a European database. Maybe he's on an Australian database. Maybe he's on the FBI database. And we sent it all over the world, nothing, nothing. And it was unbelievable and hugely disappointing. Because there we were, we had this positive, complete profile from Helen's Co. And we knew it had to be one of the men involved because it was a new coat. Well, it couldn't have come from anywhere else. This had to be the guy, but there we were, stuck. That was a real mistake, wasn't it, the leaving the coat? Because they took a lot of the other clothes. Did we ever find the other clothes that were missing from the two girls? No, it was a huge mistake. The, the, it wasn't the only mistake they made, but it was, that was a huge mistake because all the other clothes were removed and there was nothing foreign brought into the crime scene. So they didn't leave anything of theirs. It wasn't on the radar then at all in 1977. So they wanted to know. So anyway, we've got this profile, but it doesn't match anybody. At that time, the, the man looking after the investigation was a guy called Alan Jones, and he's another remarkable character. There's three or four people in this investigation who really turn the thing around. Lester Nibb, I've just spoken about John McGowan, takes a very important role, center to the investigation, and now we get Alan Jones. Now, Alan Jones is a big, strong guy, and he's forceful in every way. Everything he does. And Alan Jones will not take no for an answer. If you say no to me, he'll come back another question. Well, how about this? And how about that? And that's the attitude he took towards this DNA sample. He was not content to leave it as simply, we don't know who this is. He thought there was more to it. Now, we'd always suspected that there was two men involved, but there was only one DNA profile. And we wondered about that. So what? Alan Jones took to doing, he would go to forensic science conferences where there were experts on DNA talking about DNA. The DNA analysis is not just used for a criminal investigation, it's used for a whole lot of other things, animal breeding and everything else. Yep. Uh, and Alan Jones would go to these things and he'd made up a, a couple of sides of an A4 sheet of paper telling the story of the murders, etc. And he would hand them around to these young private sector companies who were doing the groundbreaking work on DNA and say, look, can you help us? And of course, they were absolutely delighted to, to help and promote their purposes. So eventually, in 2004, so it was a long time later, Alan's been going around. And what's interesting about it is the real breakthroughs did not come from the big forensic labs like the Home Office Lab at Weatherby or our lab at Lothian Borders, or your lab in St. Clyde, they came from these small niche private sector firms who were really doing the groundbreaking stuff on DNA. And eventually in 2004, he got a call back and said, yes, we've looked at this, uh, and actually there are two 
male profiles here. There's the one you discovered a long time ago, but we've got another one. We've actually found three profiles on the coat. We've found Helen's DNA, was her coat. We've found the anonymous man who we've been looking for all these years, and we've now found another profile. Now, this process, I asked them, I said, Don't tell me in layman's terms what you've done. And he said, think about this. He said, think about a bowl of soup. He said, and think about extracting all the individual ingredients of that bowl of soup. He said, that's what we did. Yeah. You can imagine, it's a good way of thinking, thinking about a bowl yeah. of broth. And yeah. Anyway, we got the second profile back. We matched that against the database and bang, Angus Robertson Sinclair. We had him. At last, we had him. And then, of course, we say, who the hell's Angus Robertson Sinclair? Because we'd never heard of him in East of Scotland. He was not on our database. He was not a man we had known. And of course, then we start to look very seriously at Angus Sinclair. The good thing about Angus Sinclair was he was in prison, so he wasn't going anywhere, and he wasn't a danger to the public, and so we could take as long as we wanted yeah. to look at Angus Sinclair, always mindful of the fact that we still had this profile from this number one man who had been looking all these years. So he was still, as far as we knew at that time, he was out and about. Yep. And... You had the, the strong DNA now for the second perpetrator who we'll talk about later along with Angus Sinclair. Tom, that's fascinating. I feel as though we've been all over the place here down in Campbelltown, but uh, we're getting close. And something you said there, you keep saying there were major players along the way, like John McGowan, et cetera, et cetera. And we must get your forensic guy on as a guest, if that would be possible. You said that he's still alive and kicking. And you obviously have ways of contacting them. That would be brilliant. I have to say, on behalf of everyone, that uh, you're one of the major players there, Tom. It's obvious that you're one of the, the cogs in that wheel that was making big decisions laterally. And I believe you headed up Operation Trinity in 2004 that started to piece all this together. There's a difference. And the difference is, when you think about Lester Knapp and John McGowan, and Alan Jones, and there's one more I'm going to talk about towards the end of the investigation, he was pivotal as well. These were people who took the investigation into the next stage. Now, my role was I was always there and thereabout, and I was the officer and overall command towards the end. But these people, and it's interesting when you look at these long-running investigations, you inevitably find that there's an individual who, who grips it, who really grips it and drives it on. I mean, as you know, I've written a book recently about the Rupson murders, the famous Rupson murders in 1935. The sergeant who attends the scene, Bob Sloan, he's one of these pivotal people. He takes responsibility and he drives it in such a way as is absolutely crucial to the success. Now, Lester Nibb, John McGowan, Alan Jones all took that rule. What they did was absolutely crucial to the success of that investigation. And my simple wee point is that there's always someone got to facilitate that initiative, to facilitate that out-the-box thinking. There's got to be a gaffer to say, go and see what happens then. Go and try it. Go and get on with it and come back and let me know, rather than say, don't be so stupid. The point was that he and John McGowan, they had it all there, and it was clear and compelling, and it had to be 
supported. Absolutely had to be supported because we saw the world's end as a kind of a debt of honour. These were our girls. It was a very real sense of the fact they were our girls. And of course, I'm going to talk about the families in the next episode because they played a crucial and very positive role. In the meantime, thanks as always. Thanks for that. It's fascinating, totally unique, and it just shows that Crime Time Inc. is a, is a unique offering here because it's a look behind that thin blue line that people talk about without any of the the melodrama. I've spoken on the radio and I've spoken on television programs, several television about the World's End murders, but none of these mediums allow the discussion of the sort of detail that we're talking about now. Yeah. They don't. And what they also don't provide, Tom, is what we will provide, is a platform for people to, to question. Ex-cops that were involved, maybe we talk about trauma in one of our episodes, there'll be a platform there for people to let us know their experiences, and there's a platform here for people to interact with us and, and let us know their feelings, and for guests to come on and talk about that period in history, which is so important. Because I'm very conscious that whilst the World's End murders are going on, Robert Black is very active and uh, and Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, etc. are being abducted and murdered by Robert Black in the 80s. So it's hard to imagine all that going on at the same time. When we do it in episodes, it seems chronological, but it's not at all. Yeah, and in, and in 1990, uh, Vicky Hamilton goes missing from the old town of Bathgate. Yeah. And um, and that is the that's the start of the Peter Tobin episode. So this is why I say that was a time where incredible violence and the activities of a number of uh, incredibly predatory serial killers. On that note, Tom, we'll speak soon. Next time on Crime Time Inc. Well, first of all, we had to nail down positively Gordon Hamilton. He'd been cremated, so nothing remained of his body. Most of us leave something behind. Most of us leave a watch or a wallet or something we've touched or some precious object. Gordon Hamilton left absolutely nothing behind at all. He did a bit of painting and decorating to help Angus Sinclair. Well, he decorated some flats in parts of Glasgow and he fitted one of these polystyrene coving things round the ceiling. Aha, says the forensic investigator. Right, let's get that coving and get it off because behind that coving, you've got a veritable time capsule. And examine carefully behind the, the coving um, using the most sensitive to techniques and they found traces of Gordon Hamilton behind a polystyrene coving of a, a piece of painting and decorating that he had done 20 years before.